welcome to the Fremont Presbyterian Church podcast. Here at Fremont, we create space for people to become lifelong followers of Jesus, and we relentlessly pursue His transformation of our neighborhood, our city, and the world. Here's today's message. So when I was a, a kid, I would do just about anything to get out of doing my chores. Um, and so on one occasion, my younger brother and I were, were home by ourselves because we didn't have school, but my parents still had to go to work. Um, and so there was one clear expectation uh, that I had to thoroughly clean my bathroom um, before my mom came home at four o'clock. And for the most part, I thought, uh, I thought nothing uh, of, of, of cleaning. Um, I, didn't, I didn't think of lifting a, a, a toilet brush. Um, now, we had one of those carports at home that when someone's car came in, like, you knew that they were home. And so sure enough, right about four o'clock, uh, I hear my mom's car come um, in, in, the, in, the, in the carport. Uh, and, and so we hadn't as, as much, we, we hadn't done anything, we had all day. So in 30 seconds of desperation from carport to bathroom, I decided to spray half the bottle of Pledge in the bathroom to make it smell really good. And so sure enough, door opens, mom makes a beeline for the bathroom to make sure that we had finished the one task that we had been given to do that day. And so she walks in and she is pleasantly surprised. It smells like roses. In fact, it smells a lot better than it had smelled in a long time. And she seems so proud of the work that we had put in. And just when she was getting ready to leave, she took this finger and she went to the counter and swiped it, only to discover that there was dust everywhere. And we hadn't cleaned a lick and had only sprayed the entire bottle of Pledge to make it smell good. My approach to cleaning my bathroom really gets to the point of our passage today. You see, I was content to display an outward display of cleanliness to the neglect of what really needed to be cleaned. It served as a smokescreen that enabled me to leave undone what actually needed my attention. And that's what Jesus is going to tell us today. So let's turn to Luke chapter 11, 37 through 52. It is in your bulletins. Um, I'm going to invite you as you turn there, keep your Bibles, keep your Bibles open uh, because we're going to go through this uh, verse by verse. I think it'll be helpful to have it in front of you. Uh, so Luke chapter 11, 37 through 52. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done 
without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seed in the synagogues and greetings and marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. One of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, and saying these things, you insult us also. And he said, Woe to you, lawyers also. For you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute. So that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Woe to you, lawyers, for you've taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves and you hindered those who were entering. This is God's word for us this morning. Let's pray. Father, we, we praise you. We thank you for your word. We praise you and we thank you for hard truths. We thank you for all of your word. God, we thank you. You also have not left us to our own intellect or abilities to understand it. You've given us your spirit and we acknowledge our full dependence upon you. Father, remind of the parable of the sower that when the word is sown, there's four sows. It can be sown And it's not understood when the devil takes it. It can be quickly received, but then in times of trial, it's forsaken. Reminded it can be sown and then the cares of this world choke it out. Or it can fall on good ground and bear 30, 60, or 100 fold. And Father, that's our prayer. We pray that your word would bear incredible fruit this morning. So would you grant us by your grace an ability to tune out distraction to hear from your word, to hear from your spirit, to be transformed, to see the beauty and the glory of Christ in your word, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Now, this is one of those passages, it would be so easy to let ourselves off the hook and just pile on this Pharisee. Right? I mean, come on, How, right? How, I can't believe you would insist on such things. Right? It would be easy to walk out of church today comparing ourselves to the Pharisee and missed a golden opportunity that God is giving us in his word to hold a mirror up to our heart. And so this this passage beckons a question from us. What ideologies, worldviews, or traditions have we allowed to rival the authority of God's word in our lives? As this passage will show the result of that is devastating, not only for ourselves, but, but those that we come in contact with, and particularly those that we have influence with. So here's how we're going to really traverse the, the terrain of our text today. All right, so first, in verses 37 through 43, we're going to discover focusing on the exterior to the neglect of the interior. And then in 44 through 52, we're going to focus on neglecting the exterior to the neglect of people. And in your bulletin, the outline, that outline is in there. If you're a visual person, it's, on the, it's in the middle of, of your bulletin. If that helps you follow our direction this morning. So we're just going to go through this verse by verse. So the Pharisee, who was a religious leader, 
He invites Jesus over for dinner, and even in spite of everything, knowing what was going to happen, that Jesus obliges. And so verse 38 tells us that this Pharisee was astonished that Jesus didn't wash. Now, often before we ate dinner as kids, uh, we would be out in the street uh, playing sports, and, and we would come in, or we rarely would wash our hands. Um, if we did, we definitely didn't use soap. Once in a great while, I might, we might give a little nod to running them under the water that would just turn the dry dirt and make it wet dirt. That's not what's going on in our story. This is not a story about hygiene. This is a story about the neglect of the substance in favor of the shadow. This is a story uh, about outward displays of righteousness to the neglect of inward righteousness. This is a story about usurping the word of God for tradition. And so just to get a little better insight into this, we're going to move over to Mark for a minute. Mark 7, 1 through 4. It'll be up on your screen. This gives us a little background. Now, when, when the Pharisees gathered to him, that is Jesus, with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled. That is unwashed. For the Pharisees and, and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as washing of cups and pots and copper vessels. Now, we're going to come back there in a minute. But the main problem in our passage isn't, isn't these, it, that they had rituals of exterior washing before they ate. The problem is that outward observances of religion are dead unless the inward heart is alive. Right? I can pick fruit up off the ground. I can staple it to the tree. But if the tree is dead, the fruit is going to be rotten. And so the problem in our passage is twofold. One is the neglect of God's commands. And then it's the addition of man's commands. It's an addition and subtraction problem. Now, we might be thinking, well, gosh, these words, Jesus say, eh, it seems kind of harsh. These kind of seem kind of strong words. But let's see what is at stake. Let's go back to Mark and see what's going on in verses 6 through 9. Mark 7, 6 through 9. This will also be up on the screen for you. And he said to them, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? As it is written, the people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me teaching his doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. So there's a lot going on here. Now, if we kept reading, what we'd see in that Mark passage is that the command to honor your father and mother was nullified by tradition. And so the religious leader in our story in Luke, he's not uh, astonished because Jesus didn't have good hygiene, but because he's not majoring on the minors of human tradition. Right? And so though, think about it. Those of us who make up the church worldwide, and, and, and even here at Fremont, we come from such different backgrounds that there's no adhesive strong enough to bind us together with all our different backgrounds Accept the word of God. And the moment that the word of God becomes secondary to anything else, division is inevitable. So the Lord Jesus' response to the Pharisees' astonishment uh, of him not washing in verses 39 and 40 is to say, well, you cleanse the outside of the cup, but inside you're full of greed and wickedness. 
In other words, you honor me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. Can you imagine being a dinner guest at someone's house? Only begin to sit down and eat, and you notice, wow, the outside of this cup, it is sparkling clean. And yet as you go to drink, the inside is covered in mold. Right at that point, you wouldn't be impressed with the outward shine, no matter how much it sparkled, because you would rightly understand you cannot separate the inside from the outside. And at times, I wonder if it's easy, uh, easier for us to see this play out in the reality of a cup or a dish more than it is on a spiritual level. Right? Does our spiritual confidence, does it come from the unmerited grace of Christ alone? Or is our spiritual confidence in exterior things like, well, I mean, I grew up in kind of a religious home, or I think at the end of the day, my, my, my good, I think it outweighs my bad. Friends, uh, the, the outward observances are dead if the inward being is not connected to the abiding vine of Jesus Christ himself. Now, I think verse 41 really points at our main ar- the main argument of the entire passage. Jesus says, give alms, those things within, and everything is clean for you. Right? So Jesus, rather than an outward in approach, he's going with an inward out approach. Right? Are there certain, are there, in other words, does God have our hearts or our hoop jumping? Are there certain things in our heart of hearts that we've told God are, are essentially off limits? Do we find ourselves bargaining with God? I, I'm not willing to give you this, but I'll concede some religious activity over here just to get you off my back for another day. Right? I think of the story of the widow who gave two copper coins, which monetarily was nothing. And Jesus commends her because he had her heart. I think of the woman in Luke chapter 7 who can't stop crying because she grasped the depths of Christ's forgiveness and then wiped his feet with her tears. The pathway to freedom in Christ comes through making ourselves servants to Christ. And the more we withhold from him, the more tangled the web of bondage becomes. Sometimes, Fervent religious activity serves as a smokescreen to maintain control over God for that which we are unwilling to give up. Right? It's like an Old Testament worshiper who would bring like a maimed or sick animal for sacrifice. See, at times, fervent outward activity that costs us nothing can serve to sidetrack us from yielding ourselves to inward activity that costs us everything. And so a question for all of us to ask is, what would you say your smoke screens are that enable you to avoid the more costly inward work? Now, verses 42 and 43, Jesus goes back to this exterior focus. He says, so they're tithing. And Jesus says, that's great. You absolutely ought to have done this, but not at the expense of neglecting the love of God and justice. And then he goes on into talking about the prominent seats. The, the problem isn't the seats, it's the, it's the thirst, the unrelenting thirst for prominence, prestige, and preeminence. The problem is a heart enamored with the benefits from Christ, yet all the while yawning at the person of Christ. 
So here in this section, we're introduced to a word we're going to hear five times. And that word is woe. Now that's not, whoa, that ride was so fun. That's, that's, no, it's, it's woe. It's like Old Testament prophetic writings of doom and gloom and warning. That's, that's the woe that he's talking about here. And so the major indictment in verses 37 through 43, focusing on the exterior to the neglect of the interior. But that's not the only indictment because the Lord Jesus cares deeply for people and he will not stand by idly where these exterior practices are a stumbling block and a crushing burden to his people. So now verses 44 through 52, that's going to be our focus. The third woe in verse 44, Jesus says that they are like unmarked graves and people walk over them without knowing it. So during a feast time, travelers would come to Jerusalem on foot and the people in the area would whitewash their tombs so someone didn't accidentally step on the grave and therefore be unclean. But in contrast to these easily marked whitewashed graves, Jesus is saying you are unmarked graves. The problem with an unmarked grave is that the unsuspecting person experiences defilement from something that didn't appear to be harmful. A couple of weeks ago, I had the opportunity to, to go to Mexico and visit a couple of our missionaries, and it happened to be the Day of the Dead there. There were so many elaborate setups in cemeteries and graves, like you were going to accidentally walk into a cemetery on that day. Like it was very clearly marked out. But Jesus is saying, here's the opposite problem that many times the greatest dangers don't arise from the blatant, elaborate displays of evil. Those are some easy to see often, but those that come disguised in a religious package that unsuspecting passerbyers step on. And that's why Jesus is so strong here. See, the problem that Christ exposes is that the people, those who should have been leading the people, have become stumbling blocks to the people. And I just want to say, perhaps you've had a similar hurt. Maybe there's been a time in your life where there's been a a spiritual figure or even a, a church that has let you down. And I recognize that's incredibly painful. And if that's you, I want you to hear. I want you to hear these words of the Lord Jesus so you can be assured of of how seriously he takes this. In Matthew 18, 6, he says this, if anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. So if you've had that sort of experience, you may be tempted to walk away from anything that resembles faith, right? You might be thinking, if this is what it's all about, not me, no thank you. My, my hope and my prayer would be that you would not allow imperfect people to drive you away from a perfect God. The answer is not to walk away from Christianity. The answer is to return to an authentic Christianity. And so the force of Jesus's words come from a place of deep 
care for his fragile sheep. See, for the Lord Jesus, it's always about people. Now, in a similar passage in the book of Matthew, he's going on the same thing, right? He's going on about these woes. But here's what I want you to see here. I want you to notice one difference in this passage. And let's see if we can pick it out. So Matthew 23, he says, Therefore, I am sending you prophets and sages and teachers. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Others you will flog in your synagogues and pursue from town to town. And so upon you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on the earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered before the temple, between the temple and the altar. Truly, I tell you, all this will come on this generation. Now, pause real quick. That's where our Luke passage ends. But notice Jesus' heart right after the woes. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets and stoned those sent to you. How often I longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, his woes culminate in lament. And for many of us, right, self-righteousness in others, it makes us despise them. But the self-righteousness in others makes Jesus weep for them. Oftentimes, we can become self-righteous about the other's self-righteousness. And when we find ourselves in a position to speak hard truth, let it be from a weeping heart and not a self-righteous heart. So as we look at verses 45 and 46, we're introduced to a new category of religious leader, but the same ill effect. So Christ's fourth woe is from these leaders who are heaping burdens upon others that they are unwilling to bear. In other words, do as I say, not as I do. So earlier we mentioned two problems, the neglecting of God's commands and the adding of man's commands. And the adding of man's commands is crushing these people. Now we may be tempted to think, well, we should just forsake God's commands because they're crushing. Well, not so fast. Listen to what 1 John 5, 3 says. We're going to read this together um, as a church. Uh, it's on the screen. 1 John 5, 3. Let's read this together. In fact, this is the love for God to keep his commands and his commands are not burdensome. Amen. That's very important. While God's commands are not burdensome, man's inventions are crushing. God's commands are life-giving. Man's commands are life-sucking. Legalism is imposing the rules that are nowhere found in scripture. Legalism has been a huge stumbling block to people that have made them want nothing to do with Christianity. But if legalism is one side of the pendulum, then license is the other side. And by license, I mean, well, do whatever, anything goes. Well, legalism is lethal. What can often happen in an attempt to shun legalism is the pendulum swings so far to the other side that we mistake holiness for legalism. The knee-jerk reaction can be, well, I don't want to be legalistic, so I'm just going to make all of God's commands suggestions rather than commands to obey. So the answer is neither legalism nor license, but love manifesting in a wholehearted submission to God's word alone. So let's not shun the freedom of God's commands because we had a bad experience with someone we trusted who added commands and crushed us. 
The departure into legalism or license usually doesn't happen all at once. It is usually a subtle drift in one direction in response to going too far in the other direction. So it really begs a really important question of us. Which of those are we more prone to drift to? Legalism or license? So the fifth woe comes in verses 47 through 48. The Lord says, you build the tombs of the prophets your fathers killed. So you are witnesses and you consent to their deeds. So the people in this time, they would actually build tombs as monuments to prophets who had been killed. And they had done this really in an attempt to honor them. But what Christ is saying is in essence, you are co-conspirators with them because if you were alive when they were alive, you would have done the same thing. And that's what verses 49 through 51 are getting at. He says, throughout the centuries, God has sent you prophets to warn you. Now he sent apostles to warn as an act of grace. Yet our human condition is we don't want anyone telling us what to do. And so the prophets in the past were killed. Most of Christ's apostles here in the present were going to be killed. And of course, the Lord Jesus himself laid down his life. So he goes on to say that all the blood shed from uh, Abel to Zechariah, it's going to be required of this generation. In the Hebrew Bible, Genesis, first Bible, second Chronicles, last. Abel and Genesis, Zechariah and second Chronicles, A to Z, first to last. He's saying it's all coming upon this generation. Why? Because to whom much is given, much is required. They had revelation that previous generations didn't have and therefore they were more culpable. But church, What about us? We have the entire word of God at our fingertips whenever we want. We have God's entire revelation of who he is and what he's done for us in Christ. Are we stewarding this this revelation well that previous generations would have done anything, anything to have at their disposal? What about those in the world who don't have this revelation in a language they can read? What about those we rub shoulders with on an everyday basis uh, who are oblivious to this life-giving, eternity-shaping message. Part of faithfully stewarding this is to freely give what we have freely received. And while this passage ends with them hindering people from entering, let us be people who lead people to enter to see how precious our Savior is. All right. Has anyone else thought about this the whole time? Did you notice this incredible, deep, and beautiful irony in this passage? the Lord Jesus Christ had the cleanest hands of anyone who ever walked this earth. And he's being accused of not washing. In fact, right now, he is on a divine mission headed to Jerusalem to lay down his life in order to wash us in his blood through the laying down of his life. Psalm 24 says, Who can ascend to the mountain of God? The one with clean hands and a pure heart. But friends, that's problematic because no one has clean hands and a pure heart. We have unclean hands and an impure heart, no matter how many external washings we go through. But, so we cannot approach the mountain of God on our own. But Christ has not left us to ourselves. Hear these words in Titus chapter 3. These beautiful words. But 
Uh, anytime we see the word but in scripture, often it's changing something good is happening. But when the kindness and love of God, our savior appeared, he saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy, he saved us through the washing, the washing of rebirth and renewal of the Holy Spirit. And so church, if you've been washed by Christ, you don't need another washing to be clean. Let's let this reality take the pressure off us in our faith so it's no longer duty, but it's delight. There is no amount of religious activity that you can do to make yourself cleaner. If you haven't been washed by Christ and you've been looking to your own religious activity to make you clean, I urge you to be washed by Christ. He is the sole solution to humanity's dirt and grime. And if you desire that, I urge you, let the person you came with know or come talk to me afterwards. And so while spraying a bottle of pledge in desperation to make one's bathroom clean, that may be a good option. The spiritual equivalent doesn't work. Let's allow the reality of Christ once and for all washing to put spiritual ballast within us so we no longer opt for outward displays of religion at the expense of a fully surrendered heart. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your kindness. So many kindness to us in your word. We thank you that you look upon us as people who seek to make ourselves clean through all sorts of exterior rituals, washings, practices, and yet you gave us exactly what we needed. Father, I pray that your spirit would be gracious to us. I pray you would convict us where we need to be convicted because of this passage. I pray that you would assure us where we need to be assured because of this passage. I pray for those who have been trusting in external washings rather than the washing of Christ. God, I pray you would draw them to yourself. I pray for those of us maybe who have just forgotten. May your spirit give us a renewed sense of the totality and completion of the washing we have in Christ. And we pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to the Fremont Presbyterian Church Podcast. For more information about our church, visit fremontpress.org. We'd love for you to join us on Sunday mornings. Our service times are 9 a.m. in the sanctuary for classic worship and 10.30 a.m. in the Community Life Center for modern worship. You can catch the live stream of both services at fremontpress.org. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast to get the latest episode each week. Thanks for listening.